All right, morning, everyone. Great to see you. I asked first service a question. I'm going to ask you guys, too. What do you think about the way the elements are in that packet? Do you guys like that? <laughs> okay, now I'm, we're going to vote. <laughs> I asked first service to vote. I want you guys to vote, too. And I don't want you to vote like my students used to vote. <laughs> All right? And if you're at home, I guess you'll just have to send me an email to let me know your thoughts. So raise your hand if you liked the way the elements were before. More. Oh, wow, that's a large number. <laughs> really? I got two hands. from. I got people standing up with two hands in the air, and I'm not even going to tell you what that is because I don't want to embarrass Kirk Van Gelder. <laughs> raise your hand if you like the little packet. Not many people. Well, there is one Van Gelder. Did you see that? Your daughter. Yeah. Okay. See, I'm, Katie says that I strive to be the most efficient person she's ever met. And so when I look at those little packets, I see efficiency. So I liked them, and I thought, well, this, I love to see people serve and be active in the church and ministering, and I thought, well, this would eliminate the need for the people to do the communion teams and so forth, and so I just thought it was great. But first service was pretty much like you guys and and didn't like the new little packets either. Now, here's the other question. Do you not like the little packets simply because you don't like change? That could be. That could be, you know, sometimes people don't like change even when it's for the better was a quote that I heard. Well, you know. Oh, the styrofoam. It's the bread you don't like? That's the same thing someone said in first service. (laughs) Really? Just the way the bread feels, huh? Okay, okay, I get that. All right, well, thanks for sharing your thoughts. And if anyone at home is listening and wants to share their thoughts, let us know. So one more thing about when we get to be together, maybe we can go back to having the elements the the other way. So no guarantees. I don't know what we're going to do. We haven't talked about it as elders, but... Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being able to celebrate what your son has done, regardless of what the elements look like. We see them symbolic of his body and blood, and and the true blessing is associated with our minds and hearts being focused on um, that sacrifice and what it accomplished for us and the punishment of our sins and and our unrighteousness imputed to Christ and his righteousness imputed to us. And so we thank you for that reality and the privilege of fellowship with you. Uh, through your son's sacrifice, and we see this as an intimate time with you as you speak to us through your word. I do ask that that's what would take place, Lord, that your people would hear from you, not from me, and that we would be able to give our hearts and minds over to, to that union and that sanctifying work that your word accomplishes. We thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 12, we'll look at the last couple verses in this chapter this morning. Easiest way to find it is kind of turn toward the middle of your Bibles, probably be around Psalms. It's Ecclesiastes is in the poetical books before the, before the prophets. So this morning's sermon is the fear of God. This sermon will transition us into some sermons I plan to preach on wisdom. Katie said, do not tell them how many sermons you're going to preach on wisdom. So I can't tell you that. <laughs> We're going to start talking about wisdom next week, which I think is a really important aspect of navigating through trials. Generally, we preach on trials and we talk about suffering and and grief and how difficult trials are, but one of the really important aspects of of trials is the wisdom needed to navigate well through them. So we're going to start talking about that. Look at me at verse 12, a verse we should be familiar with. We talked about it over two different sermons. Solomon says, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. 
If you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, I think that the entire book is a fitting picture of the end of this verse. And here's what I mean. The end of the verse says, of making many books, there's no one. Much study is the weariness of the flesh. As you read through Ecclesiastes, doesn't Solomon seem weary as he's just entertaining and considering everything? Um, He's trying to find meaning in this life, and he seems almost exhausted or wearied as he uh, entertains everything that might provide some amount of satisfaction for him or prevent him from feeling like his life is vain or all life under the sun is vanity. And so after all the weariness that he experienced through the book, look what he finally says in verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So he said, all has been heard, or everything has been considered. And it's pretty tremendous for him to say this, because if I was to say all has been heard or everything has been considered, it wouldn't be that significant because I haven't considered that much in the sense of experiencing or entertaining. But when Solomon says everything has been heard, he has tremendous credibility because if there is something you could, uh, let's say this, try, taste, experience, Solomon what? He tried it, or he tasted it, or he experienced it. And so when he comes on the pages of Scripture and makes this declaration that all has been heard, this is the conclusion of the matter, we need to listen because he's someone that God allowed to have the credibility to tell us what this life is about. And that's what takes place through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God speaks through Solomon to reveal this truth, but behind the scenes, he allowed this man to, if you're familiar with Kings and familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, really to know everything that is knowable in this life. Anything that you could try to find satisfaction or meaning in, Solomon tried it. And then he finally gets to the end, and this is what he says. He says, this is the end of the matter. So to me, a a big deal, after everything that Solomon has wrestled with, all the important issues, to finally reach this conclusion here. And so the wisest man, I mean, to be really clear, the wisest man to ever live, second only to Christ himself, is about to tell us what this life is about. And I was going over the sermon with Katie. She said, this is when you just tell people, be quiet and listen. Don't miss this. Make sure you're paying attention to the wisest man to ever live, second to Christ, telling us, what this life is primarily about. Everything has been, if you're familiar with the previous 11 chapters, been very fragmented for Solomon, very confused, uh, experienced, you know, vanity upon vanity upon vanity, unable to make sense of this life, and now he can finally share what he's learned after all of the searching or putting all of the uncertainty behind him. He says that it boils down to this, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And I want you to think about something that reveals uh, to me, and I hope to you as well, why these words are so dramatic. If you think of what Solomon had considered or experienced in the previous 11 chapters, and, and from what you know of his life in First Kings, it had all been physical. If this life offers us anything physical for meaning or satisfaction, Solomon tried it. He experimented with money, power, with fame and and popularity, with relationships, with parties. He discusses his gardens, his buildings, all of his possessions and wealth. 
And so anything this world offers physically, he tasted it, he experienced it. And right here, when he says that he found the answer to meaning in life, I just want you to notice there's nothing physical to it. It is completely absent of the physical. It is entirely spiritual. So to be clear, and this is a very important point to make sure we don't miss, should meaning or satisfaction be found in this life, or should there be anything that prevents our lives from being vain, it is entirely spiritual. It is entirely found in a relationship with the Lord. And Solomon is the individual that God puts on the pages of the Scripture for us to see that no matter what you can experience or try in this life, it's going to be vanity to you if it is experienced apart from the Lord. Solomon said, after everything, fear God, keep his commandments, and this brings us to lesson one. Meaning in life is found in fearing and obeying God. Meaning in life is found in fearing and obeying God. Okay. Oh, you're still writing, sorry. Ecclesiastes and Proverbs are two books. You could almost think of them as one book with Proverbs flowing from Ecclesiastes, and here is why. Well, if I, we know Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, but primarily when we think of the book he authored, we think of Proverbs, right? Well, here's what's interesting. Proverbs is a, a conclusion or a continuation of Ecclesiastes in this sense. Ecclesiastes concludes with this statement that we should fear God, and how does Proverbs begin? How does Proverbs begin? Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So Proverbs picks up where Ecclesiastes left off. And so it's interesting to me that most scholars conclude that Solomon was a believer. We will see him in heaven. If you are familiar with his life in Kings, you could question that. You could doubt whether he went to heaven because of the severe uh, adultery in his life and covetousness, and most importantly, idolatry that he committed. It's very reasonable to wonder whether Solomon was committed to the Lord or not throughout his life. But most people believe that he wrote Ecclesiastes at the end and so repented and turned back to the Lord. Now, here's why I say that. This is what's one of the ironies of his life. I mean, besides the fact that he's given all this wisdom from God, but at times he looked very what? Foolish. That's one of the ironies. The other irony is this. He had to get to the end of his life before his life demonstrated the wisdom that God had given him. And what I mean by that is he gets, when you finally get to the end of Ecclesiastes and he says, fear God, and Proverbs tells you that fearing God is the beginning of wisdom, it took him reaching the end of his life before his life demonstrated the wisdom that God had given him earlier. And so I just share with you as your pastor, I don't want that to be the tragedy of your life. I don't want you to go some number of years or decades or perhaps reach the very end of your life and then finally realize that, that this is where true wisdom is found in fearing God. What does it mean to fear God? It means to have an attitude of reverence or an awe toward God. We respect Him. We respect His power, His greatness. As the next verse says, we keep in mind that we're going to stand before Him, that He's going to judge us. Some people could look at this and they could say, well, this is in the Old Testament, it's under the Old Covenant, and the, the Old Covenant was wrath and anger and judgment. 
But we're under the new covenant. And the new covenant is what? Love, forgiveness, mercy, and grace, right? And so this doesn't apply to us. Well, the problem with that is who, if Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, who's the mediator of the new covenant? Jesus is. And Jesus said what this verse says. Or in other words, you could look, and when Solomon says, fear God and obey his commandments, you say, well, we would expect to read this under the old covenant, but we wouldn't expect this under the new covenant. But the problem is the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus said, Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell regarding keeping his commandments. Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so this is the point. As fitting as it was for Solomon to speak the words of Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to people in his day, it is just as fitting or just as applicable for us to fear God and keep his commandments in our day. Next, notice Solomon said, this is the whole duty of man. As I was studying this verse this week, I began with someone I might even say surprise. I mean, I was familiar with this, but as I thought about it, you know, you're familiar with verses, but then you dig into them when you're preparing uh, to teach them. And I thought, wow, it's kind of surprising that it says this is the whole duty of man because I feel like I have, as I'm sure you do as well, multiple responsibilities multiple things to keep track of, multiple things to remember in areas of life where I need to be faithful. How can all of my duty be bound up in fearing God and obeying Him? And then as I reflected on that, I found it very encouraging. There's a, there's a beautiful simplicity to me afforded by this verse. I, I love being able to look at this verse and see that all of my duty can be bound up in this fearing God. It just simplifies things. There's a beautiful simplicity to it that's very uh, wonderful. We live in a confusing time. We live in a very uh, chaotic time. My hope is this can be the blessing to you that it was to me. The two sermons on the previous verses, we talked about the overwhelming, the conflicting amount of information that comes on us, comes at us uh, on a daily basis the amount of news, the amount of podcasts that you can listen to, the amount of opinions, the amount of voices that are all vying for, for our attention. And it's overwhelming, and that's why it's so um, wonderful to read that our responsibility or duty is bound up in fearing God. We can start to be confused about what we should do, what we shouldn't do, what we should listen to, what we shouldn't listen to, this article or this Facebook post or, or this blog or this advice from this friend or this interview or this podcast or this YouTube video. But for the person who fears God, there's really just one question, isn't there? And that question is, what does God want me to do? What does God want for my life? It focuses, it simplifies. For the person who fears God, they're just concerned with one thing. What does God think? How does he feel about this? What is his will or his desire for me? In the prophet Isaiah's day, well, one thing I think, I'm not going to entertain or consider um, what conspiracy, what is a conspiracy and what isn't and what's true, but I think here's one thing we all can agree on. That there's a lot of conspiracies going on. 
And the reason I don't want to go near them is because one person's conspiracy is another person's truth, right? <laughs> You're going to get into a lot of trouble really quickly as soon as someone is convinced of something and you say it's a conspiracy. But one thing I think we can agree on is that there are lots of conspiracies in our day. Well, here's what's interesting. There were lots of conspiracies in Isaiah's day. And listen to what God said, Isaiah 8. I want you to notice the remedy or the solution to all of the conspiracies. Isaiah 8, 11, The Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And so Isaiah told them essentially to take their minds off of all of these conspiracies, or take their hearts and minds off these conspiracies, and, and focus their hearts and minds on the Lord. And if they were to do that, then the conspiracies would be silenced because suddenly they wouldn't be afraid of the next conspiracy or, or rumor that they hear because to them the fear is simply of the Lord and it just silences everything else. So I want to encourage you, when you start to feel weary, as we talked about in the other two sermons, come back to this truth or reality in this verse that the whole duty is found in fearing God and keeping his commandments. Now, let me ask you a question. Fearing God and keeping his commandments, are those two separate things or is that one thing? It's a little bit of a trick question, but it's one thing, and this is why. The heart that fears God is a heart that's going to be obedient, and this brings us to lesson two. Fear of God produces obedience. Fear of God produces obedience. And I mentioned this, I just don't, I don't want anyone to leave and think, okay, I need to remember these two things from this verse. I need to remember to fear God, and then I also need to be remembering to keep his commandments. The person who fears God will obey him. Obedience to God's commands is a byproduct, or it flows from, or you could even say it's a symptom or a fruit of fearing him. Psalm 112.1, blessed is the man who fears God, who greatly delights in his commandments. The person who fears God is going to delight in obeying him and following his commands. I want to give you a few examples from Scripture. Go ahead and mark your, your spot in Ecclesiastes 12 because we'll turn back to it and go to Genesis 22. Try to put these accounts in order that we're going to look at so you don't have to flip around too much. But we'll come back to Ecclesiastes, turn to Genesis 22. Familiar account? God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Look at verse 2. One part I want you to notice in particular. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, and the notice is here, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, since God commanded Abraham to sacrifice the son whom he loved, when Abraham was willing to do that, what would you think produced that sort of obedience in Abraham's life? His love for God. Or you would expect that it was because his 
love for God was greater even than his love for Isaac that he was willing to sacrifice this son in, in obedience to God but interestingly look at verse 11 but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said Abraham Abraham and he said here I am and the angel said do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that we would expect it to say you love God but instead he says you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me so interestingly it was Abraham's fear of God that caused him to obey or be willing to sacrifice this son turn to Exodus 1 midwives are another example you know this account the Hebrews are multiplying in the land of Egypt to the point that Pharaoh becomes afraid of them uh, he sees them as a threat so he commands the midwives to execute the boys and look at verse 16 it says when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool if it is a son you shall kill him but if it is a daughter she shall live and then look at this verse 17 but the midwives they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but let the male children live and so it was their it was their fear of God that moved them to obey and what's interesting is do you think they feared Pharaoh yeah they did there would have been repercussions or consequences to their disobedience who knows what that would have been perhaps death I mean if Pharaoh's willing to kill these Hebrew boys then I suspect he'd be willing to kill the Hebrew midwives for their disobedience and so it's not I'm I'm sure that these midwives had some fear of Pharaoh and what could be done to them but it's just that their fear of God was even greater and that's what allowed them to obey in this difficult situation turn to Exodus 20. here's the context for these verses so God has delivered Israel from Egypt he has unleashed all of these plagues on the land he's went to these great lengths to see his his people freed from their bondage he delivers them through the Red Sea parts it miraculously buries the Egyptian army in it and so if I wasn't already familiar with the account by the time that the nation of Israel reaches the base of Mount Sinai I would expect God to seem for lack of a better way to say it happy to see his children <laughs> I mean he says that Israel is his uh, firstborn son he's gone to these great lengths to deliver them he has this great affection for them and so when they show up at the base of Sinai you would expect God to seem happy to see them and I understand why they could not approach the mountain because if if you're going to summarize the New Testament in one word I would say it's the word reconciliation if you're going to summarize the Old Testament in one word I would say it's the word separation and so because Jesus had not come yet and removed sin then felt there could not be fellowship between God and his people throughout the Old Testament and so when they reached Sinai I understand why they couldn't go near the mountain because they were these sinful people and they would be killed but there was another reason that God acted the way he did when he was on the mountain toward them and just look at this in verse 18 Exodus 20 verse 18 when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking the people were afraid I mean, it was terrifying they stood far off and they said to Moses you speak to us and we will listen but do not let God speak to us lest we die so they weren't just afraid of God they were afraid of his voice 
I mean, they weren't just afraid God could kill them. It seems they were afraid that his voice could kill them. Now look why God wanted to be so terrifying to them. In the next verse, here's his motivation, verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And so God said very clearly that their fear of him was a good thing because this is what was going to keep them from sin. This is what was going to keep them close to him. I don't want you to have to flip around a lot, so I'm just going to share the other examples with you. When Moses gave the law to the new generation, the old generation, they received the law in the book of Leviticus, wandered for 40 years, they died. The new generation had not received the law, or their children had not received the law. It was given to them, and then in Deuteronomy 6, 8, it says, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Walking in his ways is synonymous with obedience, and so God said that their obedience would be produced by fearing him. The psalmist said something similar, Psalm 128, 1, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Fear of God and obedience go hand in hand or together because the person who fears God will obey him. Deuteronomy 31, 12, assemble the people that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of the law. If they learn to fear him, then they would be careful to, or then they would learn to obey him as well. Now, I want you to think about something because there's an interesting few verses in the book of Jeremiah. I'm just going to share two of them with you. I tend to think that if people turn from the Lord or forsake him, it's because they don't love him. And there's probably some truth to that. But the Jews in Jeremiah's day had forsaken the Lord. They turned from him. And when God talked about why they did that, he didn't say it's because they didn't love him. He said it's because there was no fear of him. Listen to this. Jeremiah 2.19, God says, Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. So God clearly said that they abandoned him, not because they didn't love him, although I suspect they didn't love him either, but because they didn't fear him. Again, Jeremiah, okay, or let me give some context to this verse. Under the old covenant, or the old covenant failed because it was conditional and man failed. It was an if-then covenant. If you do this, then God will do this. And so because that covenant was conditional on man, we, it, it, we couldn't keep it. So when God institutes the new covenant, it will be independent of man, or it will be unconditional, or it will rest entirely on God's shoulders and not on our shoulders. Because if any covenant or relationship between God and man is going to succeed, we're, we're not going to be able to rely on our faithfulness. We're going to have to rely on God's faithfulness, right? Which, by His grace, is the case through the gospel. Our relationship is dependent on what Christ has done for us and not our ability to be perfect or, or live uh, completely righteously. When God was discussing the new covenant, he had to say all of the things he would do. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And listen to this, Jeremiah thirty-two forty. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And so God said, if I want to keep my people close to me, if I want to keep them for, for, from forsaking me or abandoning me, 
They're going to need to fear me, and I'm going to give them that fear. I'm going to put that in their hearts. And I just think it's something we might not consider that often. We tend to think that if people forsake God, it's because they don't love him. We need to consider that based on these verses, people forsake God because they don't fear him. David Wilkerson said, What produces a consistent, lasting obedience I am convinced that godly, loving obedience springs from one source, fear of the living God. I'm going to make a very bold statement. I believe it is impossible to consistently walk in obedience and holiness unless you have the fear of God in your heart. If you don't have the fear of God, you will eventually believe that God is easy on sin. You'll think that you can sin all you want. You'll get on a merry-go-round of sin and then confess sin, confess sin, And then you'll say to yourself, I'll just run back to the Lord and make it right. He'll forgive me at any moment. Now, if fear of God produces obedience, then this tells us something about disobedience, doesn't it? Let me say one more time. If fear of God produces obedience, or if obedience is produced from a fear of God, then what can we conclude about disobedience? This brings us to lesson three. Lesson three, lack of fear of God produces disobedience. Lack of fear of God produces disobedience. The other side of this is if we disobey God, it's evidence that we don't fear him. Now, sometimes you might meet people, or perhaps we've been in this situation ourselves, where people will say, I love God, I fear him, but their lives are characterized by sin or disobedience. Regardless of what they're saying, that's evidence they don't fear God. Because if you, if you think about it honestly for a moment, when we're tempted and we give in to that temptation and sin, we wouldn't have if we feared God enough. Isn't that true? We didn't fear God enough to say no. And so when, and we're all going to sin, but when someone's life is characterized by sin, that is evidence of the absence of the fear of God. So Romans 7, if you've never heard this before, you should appreciate this or recognize this. When Paul says, I do what I don't want to do, I don't do what I want to do, um, you know, I, basically I hate who I am, oh wretched man that I am, some people will pervert or twist that passage and they'll look at it for license to sin. And they'll say something like, well, Paul said I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do, and so it's okay if I do this because then I'm just being like Paul. Romans 7 is the safe haven for every believer who is struggling against sin and upset with the flesh that they have to deal with on a daily basis. Romans 7 is never to be used to find license to sin. So if I'm ever count, or when I'm counting, not when I am counseling people and I notice people struggling or fighting against sin, I regularly send them to Romans 7 for encouragement. But if I meet people who are not struggling against sin but are simply giving themselves over to it, Romans 7 would be one of the last places I would send them, right? Then I'm going to send them to 1 John, especially chapters 2 and 3, which say what? For the person who habitually engages in sin, what? they're not a believer, then they need to be challenged or rebuked by those chapters. 
Well, my, and so my simple point is this. Regardless of what people say, if their lives are characterized by habitual sin that they just give themselves over to, it is evidence that they do not fear God. And I would also say it's evidence that they haven't surrendered their, their lives to Christ. Let me give you two examples. Turn to Exodus 9. Exodus 9. We'll start at verse 27. Pharaoh sent, he called, Exodus 9, 27, Pharaoh sent, called for Moses and Aaron. He said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to Pharaoh, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Now, if you pause right here, you're familiar with what took place. There are these early chapters in Exodus. Pharaoh would become sick and tired of the plagues. He would call for Moses and Aaron. He would uh, repent, but then he would repent of his repentance, right? And go back on what he said. And Moses knew this. And so this is one more example. And I want you to see why this was happening with Pharaoh. Well, here's, let me say it like this before you look at the verse. Pharaoh looks like he fears God. He says, stop the plagues. It's terrible. It's destroying my nation. It's as though he's saying, I'm afraid of God. But look what Moses says in verse 30. As for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. So Moses says, I'll bring the plague to an end, but I know that all it is is an issue of you wanting the consequences to stop. But in your heart, there is no fear of God. And so because of that, there will not be a continued obedience. Instead, you will revert right back to your disobedience. Here's another example with Saul. You don't have to turn there, but I suspect most of you or all of you are familiar with it. God gave the Amalekites centuries, I think almost a millennium, to repent. And they didn't, and so God commanded Saul to exterminate them and destroy everything that belonged to them. And Saul goes forward. God gives him this victory over the Amalekites. Saul defeats most of the Amalekites, but he leaves enough that later they can attack Ziklag and capture David and his men's wives and children. So not only had Saul left Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, he left some number of other Amalekites alive. He destroyed everything that was worthless that he didn't like, but anything that was of any value he kept for the people. And if you kind of think about this, this is my perception or belief about what probably transpired. Saul was a somewhat spineless man, and he has to call his people to destroy all of these things that looked very valuable and profitable. So imagine that. You're a king. You lead your people in battle. One of the things that people look forward to following victories is the spoils of that battle, right? To go out and receive some amount of of, uh, wealth or possessions from the enemy that was just defeated— But in this very unique situation where God, because there were other times people could take spoils from battle, God wanted all of it destroyed. So Saul has to do this very difficult thing and lead his people to destroy everything when much of it looked what? Very attractive and valuable. It's almost like Achan when Jericho was destroyed and they weren't supposed to take any of it. And Saul didn't have the spine to do it, to get his people to destroy everything. 
And so when they, when they rebelled against his leadership, which is what, you, which is what I think is implied took place, Saul backed down from them. And so when Sam backed down from the people, and so when Samuel the prophet went to rebuke Saul, listen to what Saul said. 1 Samuel 15, 24. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And I think this is a very significant verse because we obey what we fear. We obey what we fear. Saul feared the people, and so he obeyed them. I suspect Saul had some fear in his heart toward God. It just happened that the fear he had of the people was considerably greater than the fear that he had of God. So he disobeyed God to obey the people. Now, since fear of God is so important, or I hope by this point in the sermon, you've come to that belief if you didn't already, uh, weren't already believing that fear of God is important. So I want to give you two, because the question would be, well, how do we develop fear of God? And I want to give you two uh, approaches or recommendations to develop a fear of God. And the first one is to read the Bible, to read his word. Unfortunately, and don't, do not approach God's word the way some people do, or don't view it as a buffet because generally, when people reject the parts of God's Word that get rejected, it's the parts that could give them a fear of Him. And what I mean is, when, when you meet people or when some heretic— let's say Rob Bell. Let's just use him as an example, because he's a pretty well-known heretic. When a heretic comes on the scene, and he's identified as a heretic— because he has identified some parts of God's word, rejected, excuse me, rejected some parts of God's word, what parts always get rejected? I would submit to you, it is the parts that would develop a fear of God. It is the parts about hell. It is the parts about judgment. It is the parts about suffering. People don't like those, and so they disregard them. And then because of that, you end up with people like Rob Bell or other heretics who have no fear of God. And that's the only way he could publish some of the books that he does. That's the only way that he could go to some of the places that he goes. That could, that's the only way that he could live the life that he or some of these other people live is they must have no fear of God to say or do those things. And so my point is this. If you want to develop a fear of God, you have to come to God's word very open-handedly. And you have to say, I'm going to read some things and I might be completely uncomfortable with them. I mean, think about it. I have eight children, and some of my youngest children ask me some very challenging questions about God. They ask me some very challenging questions about the Bible, and it's not easy to answer their questions. But when I share with them what God's Word says, they develop a fear of Him, and that's something that I want my children to have. And so when you come to God's Word, you have to say, whether I like it whether I like what I'm about to read or not, whether I agree with it or not, whether it makes sense to me or not, I am going to embrace it. I am going to believe it. If you don't do that, I almost guarantee you will not develop a fear of God. Now, in my mind, I do not know how someone could read the Bible, embrace what it says, and not have a fear of God. I just don't know how that could happen. 
Because if you're, and there are some places in Scripture where God looks so merciful and gracious and forgiving. I mean, when he forgives the Ninevites, when he forgives Manasseh, the thief on the cross, the parable of the prodigal son meant to reveal the forgiving heart of the father. It's, it's almost, he almost looks so forgiving and merciful and gracious, it upsets you. <laughs> if you're familiar with the wickedness of the Ninevites or Manasseh, you're like, wait, God, how could you be that, that gracious and forgiving? And then there are other parts of the Bible where you see God's severity, and I don't know how you can't be moved to fear him greatly. To me, terrifying. I don't mean terrible in, a, in an immoral way. I just mean terrible in a terrifying way. What person could develop familiarity with the character of God and not fear him? I don't know how that could happen. So if you want to fear God, read his Bible committed to believing whatever it says. Now, the second thing you can do to develop fear of God is remember the truth of our last verse. Turn to Ecclesiastes 12, 14. Turn back to it. This is the other way to develop fear of God. Remember the truth of this verse. A great reason to fear God and obey him is right here in this verse. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And this brings us to lesson four. God's judgment puts this life in perspective. God's judgment puts this life in perspective. So we learn to fear God by keeping this truth in mind that all of our lives will be reviewed by him. Or we learn to fear God by keeping in mind this truth or reality that we will stand before him and give an account of the stewardship that's been ours. Paul said something similar. Second Corinthians 5.10, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let me read this one more time. Paul said this to the Corinthians. Listen to the pronoun we so we can talk about who that includes. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. When Paul says we, who's he including? Himself, the Corinthians, and all believers. And this introduces some questions because we tend to think, well, I'm a, I'm a believer, I won't be judged. I would not say that to people. I don't tell people that there's too many qualifications and too much explanation that has to go along with that. I don't say that Christians will not be judged. I will say Christians won't be judged for their sins, but you can't get around the reality. I mean, listen to what it says. We're all going to appear before what? The judgment seat of Christ where we will be judged. We will give an account of our lives. Paul's including believers here. So the fact, and it says, whether good or evil, and that's kind of troubling because then you think, well, I thought my sins were punished on the cross so that they would no longer be judged. That is true. It is true that we won't be punished for our sins, but it's also true that when we sin, we can forfeit eternal rewards there are ways it's a demonstration of unfaithfulness, and when we give an account, it seems to be something that will, be, that will affect that judgment when it takes place. And so 
we should keep in mind that we will stand before the Lord someday and give an account of these lives that we've lived. Yes, the sins we've committed have already been punished, and what wonderful um, joy that should give us to consider that Jesus has taken the punishment that our sins have deserved, that our sins deserve. But at the same time, we should remember that we will stand before God. This discussion of judgment, it can almost seem opposed to the gospel, but listen to this, Romans 2, 16. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. One more time. According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Judgment's gospel-centered in the sense that without judgment, there is no gospel. Or in other words, we need a gospel because we're sinners. We need a gospel because our sins need to be judged. We need a gospel because God is holy and because he's just. There can't, there's, we need good news because there's bad news. And so judgment is at the center or the heart of the gospel. Here's what I want you to consider. Some things, especially recently, in this life seem huge, whether it's the coronavirus, whether it's the quarantine, whether it's the the rioting and the looting, whether if you've got any sort of health issues, whether it's financial issues. I mean, if you've lost your job, that seems huge. If you got a diagnosis from the doctor, that seems huge. If you're having marriage problems or if you've had a rebellious child, all of these things seem huge. I can tell you this with complete sincerity. We're going to stand before the Lord someday, and all of those things in this life no matter how big or monumental they seem right now, are going to seem what at that moment? Very, very small. And so my point is, which is what I put in the lesson, God's judgment puts this life in perspective. Everything that looks very big right now, when viewed through that lens that we will stand before the Lord someday, looks very, very small. To understand this in context, because I'm sharing this, because this is what Solomon said, and I want you to appreciate the point that I could say he's trying to make, or really that God is trying to make through him, is that Solomon was looking for satisfaction or meaning in life. He was looking for something that prevented his life from feeling vain. He wanted to find something that allowed him to escape the emptiness that he found after every single avenue he pursued. And this is basically what he said. I was looking for meaning or satisfaction in this life from wealth or from partying or from possessions or from pleasure. But I found it in recognizing that we will stand before the Lord someday and give an account. And whatever we have or don't have, whatever we experience or don't experience, knowing that we're going to be judged by God puts everything in perspective because accountability before God is eternal. And when considering that reality, it's only the fool, it's only the fool that could say, I'll stand before the Lord someday, yet I have no fear of him. Ultimately, the only way to find meaning in this life, the, the regular phrase that Solomon uses through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I can't say for sure that it was written with this in mind, but this is what comes to mind for me. He refers to this life as being under the sun. And when Solomon was under the sun, all he found was vanity, emptiness, meaninglessness. For Solomon to find meaning or satisfaction in life, he had to go where? Above the sun. Or he had to go to the person who's outside this life, 
He had to look beyond the temporal and the earthly to the eternal and the spiritual, the heavenly. And so my whole point is, you can't look under the sun for meaning or satisfaction. You've got to look outside of this life to the God who created everything. Everything under the sun will eventually disappoint. A relationship with the Lord gives us the meaning and the hope and the perspective we need. I'll close with this. Back in verse 14, it says, God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing. And this is exhausted. It doesn't say most deeds. It doesn't say most secret things. It says every deed, every secret thing. It couldn't be clearer that there's nothing that escapes God's judgment. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think all of us would say we have done things we're ashamed of, right? When this verse says every secret thing, what I think is there are things I've done that I want to remain secret. I don't want them to be revealed. I am ashamed of them. I do regret them. And so I can look at this verse and and cringe. But this is what I would say. If you've repented of your sins and you put your faith in Christ, then those things remain secret in the sense that Christ has taken the punishment for them on the cross. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, referring to eternal judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Or Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So on the day of judgment, for those people who fear God, they'll be vindicated. And this is one of the beautiful paradoxes of Scripture. For the person who fears God, they have nothing to fear. But for the person who doesn't fear God, then what? They have everything to fear. Eternal suffering, eternal judgment. Oswald Chambers said, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you need not fear anything else. Father, we thank you for that truth, that reality, that through what Christ has done, hopefully the fear of judgment, the fear of the punishment that our sins deserve would drive us to the cross, would drive us to the sacrifice that Jesus has made. I think about Romans 3.20, that through the law is the knowledge of sin, and that when we develop knowledge of sin, we develop understanding of the judgment or punishment that we deserve. And so we thank you for what Christ has done and that because of his sacrifice, the punishment our sins deserve have been paid. And so I pray, Lord, if there's anyone who doesn't have a fear of you, I think about any unbelievers, I think perhaps of children who haven't come to salvation yet, we pray that you would save them and give them uh, a fear of you. And for believers, I pray you would increase our fear of you. I think as our fear of you increases, so too then does our thankfulness for your son and what he's done for us. Uh, We pray these things in his name. Amen.